Good morning, church family. It is so good to be back with you again. If you don't know who I am, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at BRVC. And before we move into the service, I just want to say a huge, huge thank you to you as uh, the church family for all your uh, prayers, your support, and your care. For me, Emily, and our new daughter, Virginia, we are so thankful. It's been hard not being near our biological family, but having you has just been a testimony of the power and the grace it is being a part of the body of Christ. So thank you so, so much for that. In just a moment, we're going to have our Bible reading from John 4, and then James is going to come and speak. But before we do that, we're just going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we read his word and as James comes. So would you pray with me again? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that it is trustworthy and it is solid. You know we live in a sea of words and thoughts and opinions. There's a lot of noise in our lives. And so we ask this morning, Lord, would your word pierce through that noise as the sure and trustworthy word it is. Lord, we know your word is powerful. It, is, it brings light into the darkness. It creates worlds and it brings our salvation about. And so we ask, would your word speak to us loudly and clearly this morning? Would you give James the strength and the confidence to trust that these are your words and speak them to us? Lord, give us open ears and soft hearts to receive it. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, again, we are going to be in John chapter 4 this morning, and Danielle is going to read the Bible for us. So over to Danielle. So our reading today is um, from John 4, verses 1 to 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying they have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you as a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Oh, hi everyone. It is good to be together this morning. I'm going to start with a couple of silly questions here. And it's a question I know every single one of us have asked in our lives. What is it like to be a bird? Have you asked that before? I mean, you know, you know when you see a bird effortlessly just spread its wings and fly up into the big blue open expanse of the sky or you look at it swoop between trees or between buildings or down, down a valley or you see perhaps even a, a bird of prey circle up into the sky on the thermals and you think man what an amazing view that bird must have I wonder what it's like to be able to fly like that and here's my second silly question have you ever thought to yourself Does does a bird ever look down upon us and then think to itself, what's it like to be one of them people down there? I I mean, I know we look up and look at the birds and what's it like to be one of them, but does a bird ever look down and think, what is it like to be a a human being? What's it like to be a person? Now, now, me and my wife, Quincy, one of our favorite poets is someone called Anna Kamienczka, and she writes a poem called Funny, which answers that exact question. It's about a bird asking the question, what's it like to be a human person? What's that like? Let let me read it to you. What's it like to be a human, the bird asked. I myself don't know. Well, it's being held prisoner by your own skin while reaching for infinity, being captive to a scrap of time while touching eternity, being hopelessly certain and helplessly hopeful. Being a needle of frost and a handful of heat. Breathing in air and choking wordlessly. It's being on fire with a nest made of ashes. It's eating bread while filling up on hunger. It's dying without love. It's loving through death. That's funny, said the bird. And flew effortlessly up into the air. Silly poem, I know, but isn't it quite profound how the human experience is described there? I wonder if you asked that question before. Step back. What does it mean to be a human person? Now the picture the Bible gives us is comprehensive. To to be a person is to be made in the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully so. It's to be fallen and sinful. Yet to long to be set free from our guilt and shame. And to know forgiveness. It's to know failure. It's to be humbled. It's to long to rejoice. To be human is to long for community and to be connected to others. Crucially, it's to be an intricate mix of mind, body, and soul. But what we'll see from this passage this morning is that to be a person is also to be made for something more than this world has to offer. 
I mean, when you look at the world around us and you look at the people in the world, can you see that people are made for something more and they don't feel satisfied and they're going to as many places as possible to find uh, an answer to how can I be satisfied? How can I find my purpose? How can I feel whole? People spending their lives with restless hearts, looking for something to make them feel complete, content, full, rested, and satisfied. In our world, we see people going to incredible lengths to feel that satisfaction. Anywhere from money to achievements, relationships to power. But then still to feel this gnawing sense of emptiness. I mean, how many times have we heard the person who has it all, the celebrity or the billionaire, say, this won't make you satisfied, you'll have to go look somewhere else. Now, you might see that in the world around you, but I wonder if you feel it too. I mean, as you look across your own life, do you see a search for something that you're thirsty to? You feel like you're restless, hungry, and dissatisfied. That there's this deep, unmet longing. Or the well of your life feels shallow or dry. And if you could describe your life, I wonder if you might say, everything in life feels like I've been drinking salt water. It looks good, and it looks like it's going to do me good. But it never hits the spot. It makes my soul feel even more dehydrated. To be a person is to long for, whether we realize it or not, for that deep, rested, peaceful, and filled spiritual satisfaction. Now this morning in John chapter 4, we'll find this mind-blowing and historic conversation. It's a controversial conversation, that's for sure. And it's with an outcast woman and Jesus. Uh, She's been searching for satisfaction. Her soul is thirsty. Now Jesus knows that she has searched high uh, and low to satisfy her soul. But she just hasn't found what she's been looking for. Or or crucially what she really needs. And what Jesus does in this is he, uh, like he does so often, he masterfully opens her life before her. I mean, tenderly and directly. He opens her life and shows her her own heart. And he shows her the only thing that can satisfy her soul. And indeed the only thing that can satisfy anyone's soul. This is where to relieve the thirst of our souls. So then, big question for this morning is, well, how do we satisfy the thirst of our souls? I mean, mean, what does she learn that we need to know? Where do we go to find a satisfaction that the world obviously doesn't give us. What do we do? What we're going to do this morning is work through this conversation. It really is amazing. We'll find out the the controversy of it all. It culminates in a life-transforming satisfaction and a truth that she finds. And then I want to land it in our lives by asking two key questions with all of this. How, How do I know I'm not satisfied? And where do I find that satisfaction? So so let's dive into this. 
by looking at the beginning of the conversation here in verse 7, 8, and 9. Let's reread that. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now there's a handful of surprises just at the beginning of this conversation. Firstly, Jesus, a Jew, is speaking to a Samaritan woman. Now, now the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews goes back hundreds of years before this point. And it was to do with the way they worshipped and coming back from exile after Israel and Judah had been taken into slavery. Complicated story, but there's, there's hostility between these two people. Now, now the hostility and the hatred between them had grown to such a point that they did, didn't really even talk to each other and a Jew didn't really step into Samaria. Now, if you know the geography of, of the area, Israel's a pretty small country anyway, but landlocked inside of Israel, you'll find Samaria, centered around Mount Gerizim. And, and, and if you're a Jew, and you are on the north side of Samaria in Israel, and you need to travel to the southern side of Samaria, also in Israel, you could just take a road all the way through, but you're not going to, because you despise those people so much. What you're going to do is walk all the way around, adding an extra four days onto your journey, just to avoid stepping into that territory that belongs to those people. Second surprise we see is she's draw, drawing the water at noon. Verse 6, we see that it's the sixth hour of the day. That's midday. So this leads us to conclude that she is an outcast. Now, if you've been to this part of the world before, you will know that it is really, really hot. It's arid and it's dusty. And people tended to work in the cool, cooler parts of the day, so in the morning and then in the afternoon, but not in the heat of the day. Now, she's coming to the well at the hottest part of the day and doing manual labor of carrying the water. That leads us to see that she's an outcast because that's when the outcasts would go. Third surprise we see right here. Jesus approaches her. You're asking me for a drink? You? You can see she's puzzled by this. Perhaps she's spent much of her life getting used to rejection. And then of all the people to approach her, it's this Jewish guy asking for a drink. And in this moment... Jesus is crossing just about every single barrier that could exist to reach this lady. Crossing a cultural barrier, ethnic barrier, national barrier, righteous, unrighteous barrier. I mean, you name it. Jesus has just crossed into her world and made an approach and talked to her. This is showing us something amazing about our Savior and King Jesus. There is no distance too great for Jesus to reach into. There is no distance too great. I don't know how many times I've heard it before. A lot. People saying, Jesus, oh, I'm too messy for him. You, should, you don't know my track record. I've got to get some things together before I go to him. You don't know my sin, James. Like Texts like this show me that no situation is too far gone. No person is too far from the reach of Jesus. Can you see how far his approach and his reach and his embrace goes? There is no distance too great for him. Now, this woman says to Jesus, doesn't she, you're asking me for a drink? 
Jesus then responds with something that initially seems quite confusing to a simple question. Look at, look at verse 10 here. And Jesus answered her, If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying, give me a drink, you would have asked him, him and he would have given you living water. Now that seems like a confusing response to a simple question. Is Jesus really answering the question that she's just asked? I mean, we come across confusing answers all the time in our lives, don't we? I think back to my mid-teens, what, being about 15 years old, and I thought to myself, I've got no idea about how our country runs. I need to understand politics a little bit more. And so I endeavored to sit down, six o'clock news, and watch all of the political bits of the news to try and get my head around how our country operated. And, and it must have been Prime Minister's Question Time or something like that. And, and some politician asked a question, which seemed a simple question, but the response that was given to that question it seemed nothing to... The answer in the question just didn't seem to match at all. I remember thinking to myself, either this politics business is so above my head and they're so clever I'm not getting this, or, or they just didn't answer the question and confuse it all, which I understand is really what was going on. Now, now is Jesus giving a confusing answer off on some tangent from a very simple question? Well, of course he's not. Jesus is beginning to open up her life in front of her. You see, Jesus is going to drill down deeper. He's going to unwrap a very, very important concept for her. She doesn't yet understand what he means by this. So what she says is, but, but you don't have a bucket. I mean, how would you give me anything to quench my thirst when you don't even have anything to draw anything out of this well with? What water? Besides, our father Jacob was great, and you couldn't be uh, someone who's greater than him. Jesus answers this. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. I, I imagine him pointing to the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I wonder if the penny is just beginning to drop here. And her response makes sense. Well, give me some of that water, that living water. That's what I want. But you see what Jesus is doing here. Like a bucket being carefully drawn up out of a well, is Jesus carefully drawing her out and showing her her own heart and sin that she doesn't yet see. Jesus is going to dr drill down deeper here. Look at, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Seems like a strange statement to make, but, but Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's showing her that she has a thirst in her own soul that she hasn't even seen yet. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. The woman answered him, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This would have been an incredible moment. He knows me. He knows everything I've done. He knows everything about me. 
I am exposed before this. He knows it all. And then, of course, her response is understandable, isn't it? Oh, sir, you, you must be a prophet. You must be someone who speaks from God in a piercing way like that. And then comes an interesting conversation after this. So, so let me read it and, and explain it. Look, look at verses 20 down to 24. This is the woman still speaking here. Our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking a people who will worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, now this is a massive conversation topic of the day. Jews, is their worship right? Samaritans, is their worship right? The the big question is, how should we be worshipping? But Jesus' response right here is to say, look, it's not about where you worship anymore. It's about who you worship. And all of this provokes the woman to say, I know the Messiah. You see, the Messiah is coming. And things will be different then. And then Jesus tells her right here, I who speak to you am he. I know there's so much more in this chapter we could look at. The woman runs back into town. I mean, there's teaching, amazing teaching to the disciples. And then the people in the town believe in Jesus because of what he said to her. It's just amazing. But, But in what we're exploring here, there really is something amazing for us. I mean, what has Jesus just said to this lady? What do we really need to hear through this? Here's what he says. Lady, you see how your body thirsts for water? Well, your soul is thirsty. And you've tried to satisfy your soul through marriages and relationships. But it's not working. You're still thirsty. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the hoped for saviour. I am the one who brings satisfaction. Come to me. You notice in this, Jesus doesn't say the problem is the thirst in her soul. Rather, the problem is that she was drinking from the wrong places. A thirsty soul is not the problem. It's where we think we might satisfy our souls. And so the simple and significant lesson behind this very special conversation. The lesson is just two words. Two simple words. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is the only one who can still the restless longing in us. And without him we will continue to be restless. Jesus is the only one who could quench the deep thirst for us to feel whole like the woman we can spend our lives running to the wrong places over and over again only to find out it was Jesus all along you need to know this Jesus satisfies I think people have two massive questions off the back of this all right then how do I know I'm like this woman I mean how do I know I'm not satisfied deep down in my soul and then How do I find this satisfaction? 
Now, now these questions are for Christians and not yet Christians alike. Because some Christians stray from Jesus as their source and satisfaction. Run to the world for the things it can't give. And they're not yet Christians ask these questions because you're yet to taste of the goodness and the satisfaction of Jesus. Let's look at the first question. How do I know I'm not satisfied? Well, answer like the woman at the well, you are showing the symptoms of not being satisfied. Now we're in an age in history where more than ever, God has been pushed out of people's lives. And the big idea of the modern way of life is to push God out and to think that we don't need him, which is square one of sin. And the soundtrack of our society is we don't need God anymore because we know stuff. Nietzsche said it well, God is dead and we can do this on our own. Now this means we have a world that is going to even more different places, even further lengths to get the lasting rest in their souls that the world can't give. I mean, today, people have diversified the directions that we run to find it. Theologian James K. Smith uh, calls this phenomena the supernova effect. You know, just like a star explodes into billions of pieces, so has the places that people go to find satisfaction, end up in sin, and feeling the chaos of it all. And the symptoms of all of this are on display. Think about where we turn to. We think money will satisfy us. I will feel whole and worthy when I have enough money. We, we think power will satisfy us. Well, I'll feel complete when I'm in that position of power and I'll be a somebody. We think relationships will satisfy us. Well, I just need that marriage to work out. I need that to be fixed or I need to have that relationship. Or like this woman, not that partner, not that one, not that one, but this one. No, not them, but them. Hmm. We think achievement will satisfy us, right? Well, I will have found the purpose when I have that accolade in my life. We think eternal youth and a desirable image will satisfy us. Well, I'll feel valuable when I look like that. We think control will satisfy us. If I can just isolate and manage every risk, then I'll be happy and content. We think intellect will satisfy us. If I just know everything about every situation, I'll be safe and secure. And yet we're still restless. Now our world says, we don't need God. That sounds good to the modern ear (laughs) and to the sinful human heart. It sounds glorious. But I know if Jesus is not your source and satisfaction... You will feel and be empty. Nothing in this world will seem to cut it. And you'll be showing the symptoms. All right, what are some of the symptoms then? Well, the key one is that you're restless. Just like this woman. You know you're in this place when you look back on the last few years of your life and you've jumped around all over the place. Bounced through jobs, through churches, or relationships, gone traveling, different destinations, and it's still not enough. The grass is always green as someone else. They've got it right, just not here. You're restless. You find something to do that excites you, just for a bit. But it doesn't take long for you to stray onto something else. Or or you find something that excites you, and, and, and it makes you feel good for a while. And suddenly your demeanor changes. Other people notice it. They notice it. You're easier to live with. But they know it won't last. Because it will pass and 
you'll be back on to being restless and grumpy and looking for the next high. Do you see that that's showing you something deeper about your own heart? Second symptom that I think comes out of being restless is you might feel weirdly angry a lot. You know you're in this place when you have this general irritation with the world, with people, and when you stop and think about it, it's, it's barely logical. Imagine the scene. Uh, it, it's a Saturday morning, and you've got a nice, peaceful, restful Saturday ahead of you. You've got the odd DIY job that you could get done in the house, or something needs to get done, emails, whatever. But they can all wait. And yet you find when life goes quiet for a minute or two, you have this weird humming away anger and irritation. And it doesn't take much for the kids to irritate you or for the neighbor's loud gardening to bother you. You're on edge for some reason and yet you just can't see why. Now when we feel this, when we're in this angry place, we often blame others. It's a sign of a dissatisfied person. Something doesn't feel quite right. Life doesn't feel like you like you want it to feel. And so somebody has to be blamed. It just doesn't feel right. And you can blame yourself or you can blame others. You can build grudges around other people. But can you see this is the, the sign of a deeper issue, that there is a hole in your soul? Another symptom which comes out of being restless. You've become generally disillusioned. Now You, you know you're in this place when you feel like you've given up on the pursuit of feeling satisfied altogether. You feel empty. You feel like you've given up on finding it. Maybe there's this cynicism or bitterness in your outlook on life. You feel like no point. You feel defeated and detached. I mean, that's a sign that you've looked in the places for fulfillment so often and your hope has been deferred so many times that you've concluded this world offers nothing and you can't even find it. Nothing's right. That's another symptom, isn't it? Nothing seems right. Your spouse can't get anything right in your eyes. Your kids need to reach higher standards. Colleagues at work are more irritating and annoying. And, and, and they can't do anything right. Everything makes you complain. And your entitlement and expectations are just through the roof. And then lastly, this is all the result of being restless like this woman. You're exhausted. It's like you've been on a treadmill. Chasing something but not moving a single inch towards the peace that you wanted. And of course, that's made you feel exhausted and worn out. Now you can see all of these symptoms within the lifespan of one person. In our teens and twenties, we're on the search for that thing. We're restless. Something's going to satisfy us. And without Jesus, by the time we get to our thirties and forties, we're agitated and angry because we can't seem to find it. In our 50s and 60s, we've grown disillusioned and cynical with the world. And by 70s and beyond, we're defeated and detached because this life went too quickly and nothing we poured ourselves into gave back on the satisfaction that it promised it would give in the first place. I wonder today, are you haunted by the gnawing sense that something isn't right? Spooked by the sense of emptiness in your own soul, running to the wrong places to fill yourself or feeling that it's all pointless? As a not yet Christian, are you missing something massive? As a Christian, have you started to feel that too? Second big question, how do I find satisfaction? Well, I'm going to give you some truths that you need to stand on in order to find satisfaction. Firstly, we were made for God. 
We were made for God. And until we know him and go to him, we will always be tragically searching in the wrong places. The beautiful story in scripture of our history is that we were made for God and by him. We see that in Genesis. Made to care for and to keep the earth. Made to live in community with others and in perfect harmony with God himself. I love how C.S. famously and wonderfully puts this. Creatures are not born with a desire unless satisfaction for that desire exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, isn't that true? That's what this woman at the well is finding out. She's been searching her life. And her life and her choices demonstrate a a deep dissatisfaction and a restless search for wholeness. Only to find that she was made for something much, much more. She was made to find satisfaction in Jesus. And she wouldn't have it until he found her. Second key truth we need to stand on. We have got it wrong. Like this woman... Like the first people, we spend our lives rejecting God. We, in our sin, have run to the wrong places to be full. Worshipped everything other than God. We have been living in a self-induced emptiness. We've gone staggering off impulsively to swig on salt water. And like seasick sailors lost at sea, we're surrounded by salt water that promises satisfaction in this world, but it leaves us horribly unwell. I think of Coldridge's rhyme of of an ancient mariner. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. That's what it's like to live in this world, isn't it? This woman has run to six different people. That's six different places to find satisfaction that only Jesus could give. How many more places have we run to? Third key truth we stand on. God didn't turn his back on us. You see, Jesus came in human flesh walked the perfect path that we couldn't walk. And Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus dealt with our sin and our misplaced searching. On the cross, Jesus died so that we could be made right with God and never thirst again. Now we need Jesus and we won't be whole until we have him. Without God, we're destined for an eternal thirst and misery. We won't be full in this life without him or in eternity Unless we have him and he has us, we will be restless until we know him. As St. Augustine perfectly put it, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Now if you're in that place today like the woman, come to Jesus. He will give your hurt, angry, restless, defeated, detached and thirsty soul the deep rest that you want and you desperately need. See, Jesus gives, he forgives sin when we ask. He will make you whole. Jesus satisfies. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, you need him more than you realize. Your soul is thirsty. And without Jesus, you will experience that deep thirst, not just in this life, but through eternity. Now, if you do know Jesus and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then now's the chance to recenter your life upon him. 
I mean, have you been wondering why, as you gaze at the fountain of life himself, why you don't feel satisfied and that something isn't right? You see, too many Christians, we unnecessarily wander from the fount himself. And we end up with the gnawing sensation of a thirsty soul. We've run to the world for satisfaction. And it couldn't give it. Knowing our stale worldliness, we swagger like we've got it sorted. But we've strayed. And our souls are starved of the satisfaction that has always been ours in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news. I know of a well that won't run dry. Where there is hope for your guilt and your shame. Where there is rest for your soul. And where there is satisfaction for the thirsty soul. The one you were made to know. The one you were made to love, follow and worship. The one who cried out from the cross, I thirst so that you could drink. His name is Jesus. Jesus satisfies. He forgives. And he gives you rest from your guilt and your shame. He loves. And he gives you rest from the fear of rejection. He gives you all things in the heavenlies. And sets you free from the pursuit of stuff. He gives you peace and liberates you from anger and worry. He heals. He gives hope to help you find stability in the trials of this life. He, he reorders your dreams and your plans and your priorities. He fills you with purpose and gives you what you really need. You see, in Jesus we find out who we were made to be. In Jesus we find out who we were made for, made to worship, made to follow. In Jesus, our lives become the complete puzzle. In Jesus, our souls find rest in his grace. In Jesus, we walk a different path. Because Jesus is enough. All right, James. How do I drink from the fountain that won't run dry? Well, well the answer is the same for all of us. We go to the places where we'll catch sight of his splendor, his goodness, his majesty, his grace and his justice and his forgiveness. We go to the place where we can drink from the fountain. All right, where? What do I do? Can I do anything today? Begin by opening up your Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the beauty of Jesus Christ through the words on these pages. Ask him to shine on Jesus like a floodlight. Make him unmissable. And completely irresistible. So much so that he pulls us in like a magnet to himself. And then we can drink from the well that won't run dry. And live with a new or renewed vitality. Because we have gone to the well of life. Now this morning in John 4. We've joined an historic conversation. Between the son of God himself. And this outcast woman. But she's come to terms with the truth. She's been chasing satisfaction. Her thirsty soul has been chasing. But today she's found out exactly what she needed all along. So may we see the very same truth that she comes face to face with. It's simple. It's short. But it's transforming. Jesus satisfies. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the word of the Bible. Your words. 
They speak in such a pointed and piercing way into our world and into our lives. But Father, we ask you would give us eyes to see, to know, and to experience Jesus as our satisfaction. Lord, we confess that far too often we have run to go drink the salt water of this world. It's made us dehydrated. We get detached. We've got restless, angry, fed up, detached from who we were made to be. But Father, we pray you would help us by your Holy Spirit to see the beauty of Jesus and to know him as our full satisfaction now and then the fountain of life of living water throughout eternity. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been great to be together this morning. We pray you have a good and restful Sunday. But as we go, may we see the very same truth the woman at the well came face to face with. Simple, short, life-changing. Jesus satisfies. Go in peace, saints.